This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth you would, in Hartsville, New York. Turn in your Bible Grace and Truth to the was planted Genesis, in 2002, chapter and seeking 15, to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more in sermons from one, this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or after the these things, in any way. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed in God, he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Holy, holy, holy is your name. And you sit on your throne, which is the inhabitation of righteousness. And Lord, your throne can be either a throne of mercy, a throne of grace, or a throne of judgment. And Lord, we confess here today that all of us deserve your justice. We deserve to be judged for our sin. But Lord, we thank you that in your grace, in your infinite grace, you displayed mercy towards us, not meeting out the demands of the law that are required of us. But Lord, you sent your Son to die in our place, to satisfy your justice. But even more so than that, Lord, as we discover today, you counted us as standing in the right with you. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to receive from you wondrous things out of your law today. May you anoint me as your preacher today, that I would have wisdom, and what I utter would be the very words that you would have me to speak. And if there's anything that is not there, Lord, restrain me. We bring this to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and our Redeemer. Amen. In reading our text today, we come to a very important chapter in the book of Genesis and a pivotal section in determining more or less the rest of the narrative in the book of Genesis. We begin with the life of Abram in the Kul of Ur in chapter 12, and we've seen some of his back and forthness and his building and journeying in faith in the last few chapters. But it is at this pivotal moment in the life of Abraham where the inspired writer of Scripture tells us that something significant, there was a significant milestone in Abraham's life. We read about that today where God promises to give him a great reward. 
Was the reward itself the promised seed which Abraham had yet to see evidence or proof of? Would it be the land of Canaan which he was already dwelling in? Or was there a much greater reward that had nothing to do with either one? Well, that's going to be the subject of our study today. And that's where we're going to pay attention to see exactly what is the reward of Abraham from God. And so what I'd like to do is look at the text before us and examine uh, what is going on here, particularly in this context. But more importantly, I want to direct our attention today to something very, very uh, profound and something very important that we need to understand. And that is this this teaching here in verse 6, where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, as John was reading earlier, uses this text as the basis and the standard for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Pretty much, essentially, the gospel. And I thought today I needed to slow down and really pay attention to this doctrine because of its utter importance and paramount significance in the Christian faith. It is my responsibility to accurately teach you the Word of God. And it is my responsibility as a pastor to make sure that you have a full understanding and a correct understanding of the Gospel. If you don't get this, you don't get the Gospel. Martin Luther said when he was defending and arguing against the Roman Catholic Church for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, He says this, and I quote, When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines flow. It alone begets, nourishes, builds and preserves and defends the church of God. And without it, the church cannot exist for one hour. It is the chief article from which the church, as he would say in that same paragraph, The church either stands or falls. John Calvin, in a similar uh, train of thought, says in his commentary that the main hinge on which religion turns is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's, in his own words, I quote, is the sum of all religion, end quote. So I would suggest today that today's message is a vitally important one. And I urge you today... While it may be a little complex to pay attention, you need to put on your thinking caps today. Take notes if you must. Listen to the sermon a second time. But it is so important that we really grasp and understand what we're going to look at today. Well, let's pick up where we left off last time. And uh, uh, we remember in Genesis 14, uh, Abraham went out and had this uh, uh, battle with the five kings of of the Babylon Mesopotamian region. He went out particularly with the intention to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped along with the plunder and booty of the Jordan or the Transjordanian Valley uh, cities. So Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoah had all been plundered because they had refused to pay 
uh, uh, their annual tribute to the five kings of Mesopotamia. And as a result, they were plundered, uh, they were wiped out, and the booty was taken, including men, women, and children, including Lot and his family. And once Abraham had heard of this, he went on a rescue mission. And we read of the mighty uh, grace of God in Abraham and his 318 men, essentially wiping out the five armies of Gedorliomer. Uh, he is the original 300 uh, uh, movie that you've ever seen it. I mean, this is where it's all based out of. Uh, and it was the hand of God that was with him, not the hand of Zeus or any other false deity. And so it is exactly uh, uh, on that premise we come into chapter 15, because if you read in the first verse, it says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And so what does it mean after these things? Clearly this is following chronologically after the events that took place in chapter 14. After these things, God comes to Abraham in a vision and speaks to him. In fact, the formula that's used here, that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, is pretty much the same formula that is used throughout the Old Testament regarding when God speaks to a prophet and reveals a divine revelation to a prophet. So not only is Abraham a patriarch, but as we'll see, he is a prophet of God. God reveals himself to Abraham. He reveals his word to him. And therefore, he is not merely just the patriarch of faith, but he is an agent of revelation. And so today our sermon will examine the content of that word, of that vision, but more importantly will be the response of Abraham. First, the Lord assures Abraham of his plan for him. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Evidently, Abraham to some degree was afraid. Oh, what was he afraid of? Well, it could have been the retribution of Gedoliomer for his humiliating defeat in the Transjordanian Valley by a band of 318 uh, uh, men of a ragtag army that just took down the five greatest armies in the world at that time. Perhaps it was a knee-jerk reaction of the Canaanites, maybe fearing that now Abraham is a military threat. He's dwelling in their land. And so all kinds of thoughts have gone through Abraham's mind now. Yes, he was honored. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came in and bestowed a tremendous blessing on him in front of all the peoples. Uh, who knows what's going through Abraham's head? He was living a quiet life. Now he is well known. Now he is famous. But with fame comes a sense of where people dislike you. And so now who knows what he's fearing. And we could speculate to that. But more importantly, as God comes to him in a vision, maybe... God's revelation of fear not has more to do with his imminent presence bringing upon Abraham a sense of trembling and fear. Throughout the Bible, whenever God appears in a theophany to any of his servants, whenever an angel of the Lord appears to uh, one of the people in the Bible, or, or when angel, the archangel Gabriel appears to Mary, everything is always prefaced by fear not. Sometimes people... I've heard in the past as a Christian, people said to me, well, you know, um, the Lord Jesus appeared to me one day. Really? Or somebody says to me, an angel appeared to me. Is that right? Well, said, How did you react? Oh, it was a beautiful experience. And, I, and whenever I hear that, I begin immediately to have a red flag in question 
because it seems to me the consistent experience of the most holy people in the Bible is that when they see an angel or they see an appearance of the angel of the Lord or an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ after his glorification is, is, is utter fear and terror. If the Lord Jesus were to appear to you in his glory, then you, like the Apostle Paul, will fall down as a blind man. The Apostle John, and as, as righteous and as godly as a man as he was when he was taken up into a vision into the heavens in the book of Revelation, trembled and fell to the ground in fear and awe of the presence of Almighty God. No, if anyone tells you they've had a vision of God and they had some carefree conversation with the Lord or an angel, they are lying to you. And so, Abraham is comforted by the Lord. Fear not, Abram. And then he reminds him, he says, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. His two things... He wants Abraham to be aware of one. He says, I am your shield. Clearly, God is communicating to Abraham that he needs not to fear the retaliation of the armies. He needs not to fear the Canaanites. He needs not to fear anyone or anything because God is his shield. He is his protection. He is his refuge. In fact, the word used here for shield is migen in Hebrew. And it is the same word that is used uh, when when Abram is blessed by Melchizedek, and Melchizedek says, Blessed is the Lord God Almighty who delivered Abraham from these uh, armies. The word delivered is the same as protect here, and it implies that there is this divine protection that God is with Abraham. Secondly, he says, Your reward shall be great. Now this word here, reward in Hebrew, carries the meaning of a payment to a mercenary. Now essentially, after denying all the spoils of the war of the king of Sodom, remember the king of Sodom came to him and says, Abraham, you could keep everything, just give me the people. And Abraham said, no, I've lifted my hand to heaven, I will not take even a sandal strap from you, lest it be said that Abraham was made rich by the men of Sodom. Abraham was not in that war for booty, but to rescue his nephew. All he wanted was the food for his army. And so after denying the spoils of the war that king of, the king of Sodom offered him, he showed his integrity. He proved to be a man of faith. And he proved to be a man who trusted and was resilient in his confidence of God's ability to be with him and to deliver him. He did not need the riches of this world because he had God and that was enough. And as a result of that, God says, guess what, Abraham? Your reward will be really great. The question is, what will be his reward? In the context, even Abraham himself is questioning what the reward will be. We see in the next few verses that he begins to question God. He begins to ask God, well, what can you give me? But notice how he addresses God. He doesn't simply approach Him in a, in a nonchalant manner. But he says, O Lord God. And that word there, O Lord God. And when you see capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, that basically means master or sovereign Lord. And so what he's basically implying there is the very few times that this uh, 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 phrase or this 
uh, a combination is used as a title for God in the Old Testament, particularly in the Pentateuch. But what he is saying is, God, you are sovereign. You are master over my life. You are sovereign over all creation. So I recognize your sovereignty in everything. He says, but what can you give me? Even, even he, he is questioning uh, 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 what God has in store for him. What is this reward? And then he goes on. Listen to Abraham's reasoning. For I continue childless in the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And so Abraham has a very legitimate concern. I mean, he's an old man. He obeyed God. He left his family. He left his country. He left his kin. He went to uh, Canaan. He settled the land. God has prospered him. He's a very wealthy man at this point. God has delivered him from the hands of Pharaoh. God has delivered him from the five armies of the Mesopotamian region. Uh, clearly, God has demonstrated great grace to him in, in marvelous ways and fulfilled many of the promises. But there's still one thing missing. He doesn't have a son. And he's not getting any younger. And neither is Sarah. And so, here he is, perfectly reasonable. Well, I don't have any children yet, and all I have is Eleazar, my servant. And in that time, it was very common that if you had a chief servant in your household, uh, you could adopt that servant, that slave, and, and actually uh, transfer uh, all the rights of, a, of an actual biological child to that servant and make them your heir. It was very common in the ancient world. And so, Eleazar, who was the chief servant in Abraham's household is adopted at this point and, and he has made him his heir. Uh, should Abraham die, Eleazar would inherit everything. Now, just a quick question. Now some may look at this and wonder, wow, Abraham was doubting, he was wavering in unbelief. But rather, it's the opposite. You see, I want you to look at something. We must distinguish the difference. We must distinguish the difference between complaining out of faith versus despairing in silence. Let me repeat that. We must distinguish between complaining out of faith and despairing in silence. You see, he's he's not wavering in unbelief. He fully and implicitly trusts that God is able to do all that he says he's going to do. And so he's complaining to God, who is the sovereign Lord, reminding him of the promises that he made, knowing that only God could answer them. <coughs> There's many times where we do the same. You read through the book of Psalms. David is a man after God's own heart. No one doubts his faith wavered. But many times David cries out, my enemies are about me. Uh, the people slander me. My, uh, my own friends are against me. Oh Lord, won't you deliver me? Where are you, O oh Lord? Psalm 73 in the Song of Asaph. You know, the wicked prosper and we go about all the day long afflicted. Oh Lord, where are you? This is not a demonstration of a lack of faith, but it's the very opposite. You're implying that you trust God so much, you're calling upon because you know He could do it. God, intervene. God, we need you. God, you made a promise. We're calling upon you because we believe that you're the only one who could do it. As opposed to despairing in faith. What I, the opposite of that would be, or a lack of faith would be, when something goes wrong in your life, and instead of going to God, instead of complaining to Him, instead of praying, you just stay quiet and keep it in and just give up and give up hope. That's despair. When you just say, forget it, nothing's going to work. Why bother praying? God doesn't hear my prayers anyway. That's, that's not faith. That's doubt. That's despair. 
Bruce Watke says this, it takes spiritual energy of faith to complain in contrast to despairing in silence. It takes spiritual energy to complain in faith. But the Lord does indeed have a plan and unfolds that plan to Abraham in all of chapter 15. The whole of chapter 15 is really broken up into two sections. Verses 1 through 6, which we're going to look at today, deals with God's promise to Abraham about the seed and that that reward uh, through the offspring, through the inheritance that he will receive, that he will have a natural born son and that just if you could count the stars in the sky, Abraham, so will be your offspring. And then the second half of that, the remainder of the chapter, which we'll look at next time, deals primarily with God's covenant with Abraham and particularly uh, an affirmation and ratification of his promise to give him the land of Canaan. And so there are two parts to this. Um, but the main component overall, this is God's covenant with Abraham. And the, the one verse, or the one part that links the two sections together is verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There is one verse that blares out in that whole chapter. It's verse 6. It's what links the two things together. It is the basis of the covenant And it is the reason why God has great plans for Abraham. And so we need to examine this, verse 6. And now we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it. Here is the jewel of the text. Now notice Abraham's response. He said nothing, but he believed. The Hebrew word is aman. Where is what we get the word amen from? When we say amen, what are we saying? We're we're assenting in agreement to something. We're saying yes, amen. We're affirming something that's true. This is derived from the Hebrew word amen, which means to believe. And it's basically Abraham assenting to and affirming and trusting that the word of God is true and trustworthy because God himself is true and God himself is trustworthy. The object of Abraham's faith is not faith in and of itself, but is God himself. It is also in the perfect tense. Abraham believed in God. In other words, his belief was not something new. It wasn't as if all of a sudden all this time had passed and all of a sudden Abraham generated saving faith within himself at this point in time. No, from the moment God revealed himself to him at Ur and said, leave your country and leave your family, go to the land that I will show you, was the day that Abraham trusted in God. He believed in God and he obeyed God. And all throughout chapter 12 and 13 and 14, we have a demonstration of this growing faith in Abraham, this journey of faith in him. It's in the perfect tense, which means it's been going on for a while and will continue. But it is at this point where the author of Genesis marks the significant milestone of Abraham's journey of faith. Namely, is the result of his faith is that at this moment in time, God does something remarkable. It says that he counted it as righteousness to him. Well, what does that mean? Clearly, Abraham trusted God in Implicitly, against all the odds. He believed in the promise of the child. He believed in God with all his heart and trusted him holistically. And it says that God credited to him as righteousness. What, 
What a profound statement. What a profound principle. A man trusts God and God credits him with righteousness. Essentially, God takes Abraham, who is the sinner, the moon worshiper from Chaldees, and says, Now, Abraham, I am declaring that you are in the right with me. That's what it means to say, Abraham, you're righteous. God is counting. He is crediting Abraham with a righteousness, that he is a right man with God. He's in the right with the Lord. He's in a right standing. Now the question is, what does this all mean? Well, the first thing we need to realize here is what is righteousness? You've heard that word a hundred times already in this service today between our opening prayer, our worship, our singing, our Bible reading, uh, 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 our comments, and now up to this point of the sermon. It was countless times we've repeated that word today. But I think many of us still linger in our question, what does righteousness mean? I mean, often we have a negative connotation of righteousness, right? Because when we think of righteous, the word righteous, we think of self-righteous, right? That's a bad word. And so, naturally, that word has a negative connotation. We think of the Pharisees who were self-righteous. But what does it really mean to be righteous? And what is righteousness? I think we need a working definition and understanding of that if we're going to understand what Abraham's great reward was here. Well, righteousness is really a legal term. In the broadest sense... It refers to being in the right with the law or being in conformity to the law. So as this word is used in in a general sense, a righteous man is a law-abiding citizen. So if I say uh, uh, that, that one of you is a righteous person in a broad sense, what I'm saying is that you do what's right. You do the right thing. You live according to the law of the land. You're an outstanding citizen. You're the kind of person that's dependable. You, you, you do what is right, what is expected in conformity to the right standards of any given society. But in a very narrow sense, righteousness in the Bible is referring to God. God is righteous. His throne is the inhabitation of righteousness. The Lord Himself is righteous in the most narrow sense because when we talk about God being righteous, we are saying that God always does what's right. God never does what's wrong. God always does what's right and what should be done consistently and without partiality or prejudice. Clearly, His righteousness flows from His holiness. God is God. He's holy. He's pure. He's perfect. Which is why God is always right. When we talk about a person being righteous, particularly in the context of with God, we are talking about a person who lives in conformity to the righteousness of God. Well, how do we know that standard? Very clearly, God gives us a law. Right? Far after Abraham, God reveals to the nation of Israel a very specific 
view of what righteousness is and what that looks like. And that is inscribed with his very own finger on the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments contain what we call the moral law. It is transcendent. It is not related just to the nation of Israel. It is not related uh, uh, um, just to that particular time in history. But the Ten Commandments reveal the righteous standards and the righteous character of God in a very pragmatic and tangible way. If you obey these laws and conform to them, then you will be in some way like God. You will uphold His standards. You will be in conformity. You will be in the right with Him. The problem is this, though. While the Ten Commandments are holy, and they are just, and they are good, they do nothing to help us become righteous. Because all the Ten Commandments do is show us how unrighteous we are. They shine a light on us and say, here is God's standard, and the more you try to obey it, and the more you try to meet God's standard of righteousness, the more you find yourself this big. I mean, do a test. Write the Ten Commandments, and at the end of every day when you go home, do an inventory and see how many times you broke one of those commandments. I'm telling you, you won't get through half the day without doing something wrong. In fact, when we really get an understanding of righteousness as a legal term and as a legal standard, we are brought into the courtroom of God. The Apostle Paul does this very clearly in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out the groundwork in his, in his gospel, so to speak, of how all mankind are guilty and condemned under God. In Romans chapter 1, he basically levels an indictment against all the world apart from, from God. All the world is guilty there. The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all mankind who suppress the truth in, un, in unrighteousness. In chapter 2, Paul then addresses the Jews who although they have the law and although they claim to be righteous, they are just as guilty and just as profane as the unbelieving pagans of the world, of the Gentiles. In fact, in chapter 3, we get to the, to the crescendo of Paul's argument. If you will, turn with me in the book of Romans chapter 3. We had this courtroom scene of God, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Both the Gentiles and the Jews all find themselves guilty, guilty. They're all, no one has kept the law. We're all lawbreakers. We're all, in a sense, rebels and criminals in the court of God. And so the question is, can you, by adherence to God's law, be righteous? Can you be declared just before God, a just and righteous human being, based on your obedience to the law of God? And Paul's answer is, no. Look at me with Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. And no one does good. Not even one. 
What does the Word of God tell us? Can anyone achieve a right standing with God on their own? Absolutely not. Look at verse 19. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here we are. Can I work towards getting right with God if I'm just religious enough? Absolutely not. I heard a good illustration the other night in our way of the master training. We may think we're pretty good. We may have a good view of ourselves, morally speaking. But I thought a very good illustration was this. You ever clean a window in your house? And it looks spotless, right? But when the sun comes up in the morning and and comes through that window, all of a sudden you see dirt and streaks all over that window. And you can even see the dust floating around in the air. Well, that's how God's law is. You think you're a good person. God's law simply shines on you like that light coming through the window and exposes every defilement and every particle of dust that corrupts you and makes you stand apart from God. No, no one can be justified in God's sight by works of the law. It's utterly impossible. And this is exactly what we get to when we're talking about Abraham. Abraham himself falls in this category. Abraham comes before the law is revealed. So even more so, he has no knowledge of the law. But irregardless if he has no knowledge of the law, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 that that the law has been written in our hearts. It tells us that the, the law has been written in our hearts that either convict us or excuse our conscience, bearing witness to us in verse 15. God puts the law in all of our hearts as image bearers of Him. And so Abraham is just as guilty as those who have the law. That's the whole point of Paul's argument. If you're a Gentile who never had the law, or if you're a Jew who had the law, it does not make a difference. All are guilty in God's sight. This isn't merely, well, I never heard the Word of God, so how could God hold me accountable? We somehow think that that if the aborigines in that, that live in, in, in some remote part of the world, never heard the gospel, never heard the Bible, that somehow they're innocent and God will forgive them and bring them to heaven, are ignoring the essential fact that even if they never heard the word, they have two things that testify against them. Nature, which bears witness against them by God. God created the universe and he, his, his attributes are clearly expressed through that which is created. It's undeniable that there is a one true God. Nature itself testifies against them, but more importantly, in the heart of every man, I don't care where you live in this world, God's law has been written in your hearts as an image bearer, and it testifies and convicts you as guilty before God. No one is innocent. No one is innocent. And if the aborigines can achieve righteousness apart from us going there and bringing them the gospel, then we might as well shut down all of our missionary centers across the country. Why bother sending a missionary to anywhere in the world if that's the case? Why bother sharing the gospel? So Abraham himself comes under this guilt. He himself is a criminal before God. So when the scripture says that God counted it to him as righteousness, what does this mean? Well, there's only two possibilities of what's going on here. 
two possibilities. One is that Abraham's faith itself was so good that God, God counted his faith and credited his faith as a righteous act. And it was counted by God as the equivalence of keeping the entire law of God. Let me illustrate. Let's say, let's say that you owe the government a million dollars in back taxes. And the IRS is knocking on your door and saying, we're coming to haul you into jail because you owe us a million dollars. And you say, well, I have $100,000 to give you. Would the FBI say, you know what? We'll take that $100,000 and we'll credit it as a million because your intentions are good. You're a nice guy. And we'll let, let the debt go. Would that ever happen? Absolutely not. To say that Abraham's faith itself was credited as righteousness is to say that Abraham's belief in God was so good and so virtuous that he basically credited the full righteousness of full obedience to all his moral laws to that one act of faith. The second possibility is that Abraham himself was counted or imputed with righteousness outside of himself received by faith. Let me put it another way between these two possibilities. It was either something Abraham did that gave him a right standing with God or was it something that God did that gave him a right standing with God? That's the two possibilities. (coughs) In order to get a better understanding, let's go to Romans chapter 4. I told you to keep your thinking caps on. You're good to keep up with me on this. But this is important. You need to get this. Look in Romans chapter 4 verse 1. Here Paul explains to us what happened to Abraham back in Genesis 15.6. We don't need to look into a Bible commentary because the Bible itself gives commentary on this very subject. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I want to stop there for a minute because we've got to look at a few things here. First thing we need to get out is what is justification? What does this word mean that God justifies or or that Abraham is justified by his faith? What does this word justify mean? Again, this is another legal term. To say that someone is justified is a proclamation. It is a a declaration. It's a forensic term that if, if, if you are a judge... In a court of law, you justify someone by saying, you are a just man. It is essentially, has the idea of someone who's on trial and is acquitted of their crime and declared just. Now, now, let me make this clear. There are some times where people are are sentenced to a crime. So someone's convicted of being guilty of, let's say, a felony. And sometimes their sentences are commuted, Right? Remember that whole Scooter Libby scandal a few years ago, the CIA? 
Scooter Libby was convicted as a felon, but his sentence was commuted by the president. There's a big difference between acquittal and having a sentence commuted. Because even if your sentence is commuted, you're still a convict. You're still guilty. You're still branded an outlaw. When we talk about justification or being justified, we are saying that someone is declared just to be in a right standing with the law. You are not a lawbreaker, but you are just and you are right with the law. That is a very strong term and is a term that Paul uses over and over and over again in the New Testament to describe what salvation is. For Paul, however, the concept of justification and imputation are one of the same. Well, what does the fancy word imputation mean now, Bob? You're really rattling me with these theological words. Well, imputation, again, is not a legal term, but this is a marketplace term. Imputation is a word in Greek which means legizomai. It's the same word Paul uses to translate the word credit in the Old Testament. We just saw God credited to him as righteousness. Well, the word impute is simply the word to credit, to reckon, or to transfer. It's an accounting term. It's like this. Remember in the old days you had a bank book? I don't know how many people remember that. I mean, now everything's digital. But back in the days when you saved money and you went to the bank, you got a bank book. And when you deposited, let's say, $100 into your savings account, the banker would get a stamp and stamp $100 on your bank book, noting crediting your account with $100. Well, that is exactly what the word impute or credit legizomai means. It means to... to deposit to to credit your account. So Paul is taking this marketplace term and combining it with legal terminology, essentially saying that this is what justification is all about. God declares somebody just. He declares them in right standing with the law. Why? Because he credits, he he imputes their account with righteousness. He imputes them, he credits them with a right standing of the law. The question is, who earned it? The person who believed, or did God himself give it as a gift? And that is the question that Paul answers here. Essentially what Paul does in these few verses I just read, Paul tells us that Abraham was justified apart from works, right? It was no working of the law that he did to achieve this righteousness. Then in verse 3, he quotes Genesis 15:6, where Abram is credited with righteousness. What Paul is doing essentially is forging a link between justification and imputation. Abraham is not justified by works, but believed in God and was counted or imputed with righteousness. And then he makes a comparison. The one who works gets wages. He earned it. So if you work for something, you get paid, it's your due. If I earned my righteousness in any way, shape, or form, then any righteousness that's credited to me, I deserve because I earned it. On the other hand, it's the one who believes in God. And what is the result of that? It's a gift of grace. Look at what he says here. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. And notice, Where is the object of justification? The faith itself? No, the ungodly. That's an amazing thing. Think of that. Ungodly and justified at the same time. Martin Luther had a profound statement for this. 
And in, in, in Latin, it's justus est el peccator. In other words, at the same time, a sinner and righteous. So God takes us who are ungodly, rebels, and sinners, and yet declares us just. It's an amazing thing. If faith itself was counted as Abraham's righteousness, then he would have something to boast of. We would all. None of this would make sense then. In fact, in Romans 4, 3 through 4, Paul argues there was nothing Abraham did to merit the righteousness. If he had done anything meritorious, he could boast, he would earn it, he would deserve it. What we have to see here, it's not something internal within Abraham that makes him righteous, such as his faith. It's something external. It is a righteousness outside of himself that's credited to him. If righteousness consists of the very faith that Abraham demonstrates, then it is something internal and inherent within his own being. And therefore he could boast. Let me also look, have you look in verse 9 of Romans 4. Listen to Paul's argument. Follow with me. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Questioning for Jews or Gentiles. And then he goes, we say that faith was counted to Abraham. Who was the, uh, uh, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, right? Verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now look at verse 11. Here's where really you have to pay attention. It says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had, what? By faith. Was it his faith itself that was righteousness? No. It was by faith he received the righteousness. Notice this. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Who is the righteousness counted to? The believer. We get the credit. Not as something that we inherently had within ourselves, but it was faith was the means by which the righteousness came. Let me take it a step further. Go back to chapter 3, verse 21 of Romans. Look what it says in 21. And here is where it really, I think, underscores the meaning that Paul is trying to convey. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. What is this righteousness that we need? It is the righteousness of who? God. It's not Abraham's righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. It's been revealed. It's an objective reality outside of ourselves. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. That explains everything that Paul is trying to say, and it it, it helps us to understand precisely what it means to be justified. It explains to us what it means when it said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was through faith that through his belief that he received the righteousness of God. 
Faith links us to God's righteousness. It is a channel to God's righteousness. It is the vehicle by which we receive this external objective reality of God's righteousness credited to our account. The reason why faith cannot possibly be meritorious in and of itself and credited as a righteous act is because faith is the exact opposite of self-reliance. Faith places the trust for the outcome of one's judgment in the hands of God, not in oneself, and places trust in the finished work of Christ. That is why faith itself is not the righteous act, but is the means by which righteousness comes to Him. Quite simply, faith is the means of justification, not the basis. What's the point of all this? As Paul says in Romans 4.22, He says that this is why his faith, speaking of Abraham, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. For it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Jesus, our Lord. The point is that faith is credited as righteousness. He does not mean that our faith is our righteousness. He means that our faith unites us to Christ so that God's righteousness is credited to us. I want to stop for a minute. There's there's really something amazing here when we look at this, because we didn't deserve it. But I want us to think of this, if this righteousness exists outside of ourselves, if this righteousness is an objective reality, this righteousness of God, where did it come from? Is God just bestow it without... Any discretion? What is the righteousness Abraham received and what's the difference between what we received? Well, the answer is very simple. It's all the righteousness of Christ. Abraham looked forward. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Why? Because Abraham rejoiced in his great reward, his justification by faith alone in the coming seed, in the Messiah, who would crush the serpent's head and redeem all those who have been lost. You see, we must see this as Jesus Christ, and and it's all pointing to Him. We have to remember something, that Christ didn't just die for us, but He lived for us. It was necessary that Jesus, to become a man. Why, Why the incarnation? For Him to become a man, so that He could live a perfect life of obedience to the law. Thus, thus making atonement for us. When we come to faith in Christ, something takes place, a divine transaction. We sang about earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, faith unites us to Christ. And justification takes place two ways. One, our sins are imputed or credited to Jesus Christ. He becomes our sin-bearer. And upon him the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. And it was his pleasure and his will to crush him. When Jesus died on a cross, he was in him himself, his record was innocent. But our records were counted to him. And he bore God's wrath in our place. In Romans chapter 3, it says this, verse 21, Now the righteousness of God, I just read, but look at verse uh, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness that in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins and it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification is this gift. It's by God's grace. It's through Christ's redemption but His propitiation. What does that word mean? It means that Christ was our sin bearer. He absorbed and He satisfied the wrath of God. Remember, let's get back to this whole courtroom scene. Justification comes from the judge who renders justice. And God is a just God. Sin isn't swept under the carpet. Sin had to be dealt with. And God's justice was put on Jesus Christ. As He satisfied the divine demands of the law and suffered and died in our place. But the second part of this divine transaction is that while our sins are imputed to Jesus Christ, His righteousness. Jesus always does what's pleasing to the Father. He lived in perfect obedience through the law. Through one sin and transgression, death came to the whole world. But through one man's obedience, who is that? Jesus Christ. Romans 5, chapter chapter 5, 17 through 19. Through one man's obedience, life to all. It was Jesus' perfect obedience from the moment He was born to the moment He died. Jesus perfectly obeyed and humbled Himself and lived according to every standard of righteousness. Even when He was baptized, John the Baptist says, I need not baptize you, but you should baptize Me. He says, no. All righteousness must be fulfilled. Jesus satisfied all of the requirements of the law so that it could be credited to our account. And He again underscores that our right standing with God does not consist of faith, but is received by faith. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You just have to trust that God took care of it and believe. That is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. There's so much more I could say, and if time permitted me, I will. But let's go back to Abraham. If God gave him all the lands of Canaan and blessed him with multiple children and he had all the treasures of the earth, it would be nothing if he wasn't right with God. Being in the right with God is something far more necessary and valuable than anything else in this world. The problem is this. Man or woman cannot make themselves right in the eyes of God. We've been corrupted and defiled. There's absolutely nothing you could do to scrub the stain of sin away. We have no merit, no gain in which we could stand by before God and be declared just. So the real reward for Abraham was not the seed, it wasn't the land, but it was justification by faith alone. He was credited and imputed with the righteousness of God earned for him by Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who merited a righteousness that gave Abraham a right standing with God that the Bible says later he is called the friend of God. And today... All of you here today who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted Him eternally with your salvation, you too have been declared just. You today don't have to worry if things are going wrong in your life because you've received a reward that you don't even deserve. You've been given a treasure and a gift 
that, that not only did you not deserve, but you deserve the very, you deserve what Jesus got on the cross. But he got what we deserved, and we got what he deserved. And if that doesn't cheer your soul this morning, I don't know what will. Well, we are Abraham's children if we too believe in Christ by faith. I want us to think of a couple of things today. One, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it don't matter how hard you work, it don't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter how nice of a person you are, it doesn't matter how much money you give to charity, and it doesn't matter what you do, you fall short of God's righteous standard. And on Judgment Day, all that you try to offer God will be rejected. You might be good, but you're not good enough. And at the same time, for all those who've come to faith in Christ, when we stand before God on Judgment Day, we will be clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. So when we stand before God, it will not be our right standing that will merit us entrance into heaven, but Christ's. And that is the treasure. That is reward. Why? Not because justification in and of itself is the, is the goal. Justification is the means to the greater goal. God Himself. You see, if justification were only about escaping hell, then we would be left kind of in a limbo. But justification is not merely about pardon of sin. It is not merely about escaping hell. But as 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Jesus died on a tree to bring us to God. God is the gospel. God is the reason. God is the reward Himself. And the only way you could truly treasure and delight in God for all that He is is if you've been justified by faith alone. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.